to Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. This is episode 114, and my name is Gabriel Williams. I'm one of the members of Christ Church, and I am here with our pastor, Pastor John Payne. It's good to see you, Pastor John. Good to see you, brother. And uh, Michael Bauer, our associate pastor, cannot be here uh, today, so today it's just going to be me and Pastor John. And for this episode, what we want to discuss and to kind of just talk about in a conversational manner is the fact that in a few days, October 31st, we are going to be celebrating Reformation Day, which is a commemoration for all good Protestants to remember <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. Asterisk on good. <laughs> all good, good Protestants. Protestants yeah. Go. Good Thank Protestants. you, Gabriel. <laughs> So I guess the first way to get started is let's just discuss some of the background history. Why is the Protestant Reformation important and why should we continue to commemorate it? Yes, that's a, a great question, Gabe. And um, we are looking forward as well to uh, Sunday evening. We're, we are going to have a special Reformation service at Christ Church. I'll, I'll be giving a, a biographical lecture on Martin Luther, so it won't be uh, our normal uh, worship service, as it were, um, with a call to worship and a benediction, but uh, just a special service to hear about uh, this great reformer and uh, what we can learn from his life and uh, to be inspired uh, by his um, his life and and uh, his legacy, uh, and we'll have some refreshments afterward. And so we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, and uh, who wants to trick-or-treat when you can come hear about Martin Luther, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so we welcome all of our, our folks um, uh, to that service and hope that you'll be encouraged uh, in that time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, October 31st, 1517, uh, this uh, Augustinian uh, monk from uh, Germany uh, nails 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, uh, where he is essentially protesting uh, against uh, heresy and error that exists in uh, the church. And we say the church because the only thing there was at that time the was church. the medieval Roman Catholic church. And uh, and so, he's protesting against the, the, the sale of indulgences and uh, much of the corruption that's taking place in uh, the Roman Catholic church. Of course, in, in 1517, uh, Luther still wouldn't have come to his full uh, uh, right. convictions yet about uh, uh, the gospel and other really important foundational doctrines, uh, but uh, he's making a strong stand, and uh, and and we see that just continue on uh, into uh, the the subsequent years, uh, particularly the Heidelberg Disputation yeah. and uh, Worms, the Council of Worms, and so forth. Uh, so uh, this is a, an important time to commemorate. Uh, those men and women uh, who were standing strong, uh, were unflinching in the face of challenges, even death, uh, to stand for doctrine. Something we've, we've lost in our own day. Uh, it's almost like the last thing in the world Christians think about is, is making a stand for, for sound doctrine. That's right. um, but uh, doctrine is that which comes to us from God. It is objective truth. And so if we can't stand for that, what, what can we stand for? And so we've got uh, great men like uh, Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and uh, John Knox, the great mm. Scottish reformer, and uh, Johann Oecklenpatius, and uh, and Ulrich Zwingli, and um, and 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 uh, William Tyndale, and on and on we could go uh, as far as the great men that God raised up. 
uh, to reclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, and we can uh, perhaps even talk about the five solas, uh, the kind of banner slogans of the Reformation that remind us about the truth that was reclaimed. Now that's that's a good point, John. And I think we should go back to what you mentioned uh, before that there were men and women who were willing to be burned at the stake for the sake of Protestant convictions. And in one sense, we should be very grateful to God that he raised up men and women who are willing to take these stands. But it also serves as a commentary, a bad commentary of our day, in which if you were to ask the, the normal Protestant today, would you be willing to be burned at the stake? For the sake of defending sola fide or solus Christus or sola scriptura. Or the I, I, doctrine of the Lord's Supper. There you go. <laughs> Even more controversial. <laughs> right? I, don't, I don't think you would get the same type of response uh, that you would have then. And I think all that means is that we have forgotten, and we, Protestant world in general, we have forgotten about the importance of these strong convictions. We have substantial differences with the Roman Catholic Church and the reality is that what the Protestants affirmed during the time of the Reformation is what makes us who we are in a sense as Protestants. It is foundational to what it means to be a Protestant today and the reality of the the fact is without the actual unfolding of these events uh, in terms of what happened after Luther's defense and all of the corresponding conflicts between Luther, Calvin, and the rest of the actual uh, medieval, the end of the medieval world at this point, we are still looking at a church that has substantial corruption at the time of the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church. We're looking at a time in which the scriptures themselves would not have been translated into uh, our vernacular languages. We're look, we're still looking at a time in which we would have to effectively have our salvation depend upon the priest that is in our parish if these things didn't change. And so as much as you know, Protestants tend to just forget the importance of these events, what this day, what October 31st should remind us is that these things are still worth dying for. They are at the heart of what the gospel is. William Tyndale uh, brought us the uh, Holy Scriptures uh, into the English language. Uh, we have um, Martin Luther uh, translating uh, the Bible into German. Uh, the the Bible was was in in Latin, the Latin Vulgate translation, and nobody understood it. And so you must understand that if you are a medieval Roman Catholic, you are going to worship, and it's a show. It literally is a performance. You're sitting, you're uh, in a larger cathedral, you're listening to a choir sing. There's no congregational singing. Uh, everything is in Latin. Uh, much of what uh, the the priest says, and again, there's that word priest, which shows the uh, the, the connection with uh, Old Testament views of worship rather than New Covenant views of worship. Uh, the priest is mumbling things under his voice; you can hardly hear anything. And then during uh, the the mass, uh, it's being held up and and worshipped, uh, and and uh, there's no real preaching going on. Uh, and and whatever is said, again, is in Latin. And so it was very much a highly superstitious um, uh, world that they lived in, and 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 of course the people are easily manipulated in these uh, churches as well. And when something like uh, an indulgence program is is begun, 
to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, uh, a, 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 an indulgence plan which says if you uh, buy this piece of paper that's blessed by the Pope, uh, your relative will receive uh, X number of years off in purgatory. Purgatory, which of course isn't even biblical. That's right. Um, this so-called limbo state between heaven and hell where you're being purged of your sins before going to heaven. Uh, there's no real doctrine of justification that is uh, that is biblical. And so you have all of these things happening in the medieval church, and then you have a man like Martin Luther um, who stands up and says, enough is enough. Um and this is where the, the slogan, the Reformation slogan, sola scriptura, comes in, mm -hmm. that the scriptures alone are the authority, right. uh, that it's not the church is the authority over the scriptures, but the scriptures are the authority over the church, and in fact, Christ is head of the church mm -hmm. and not the Pope. And these were the very things that were happening uh, in, in the church today. Now, uh, let's talk about this for a minute, Gabe. Sure. These things apply to our own day, because... We have seen, and let's just not pick on the, the mainline liberal church who's mm -hmm. just gone, yeah, you know, but yeah. let's, let's pick on uh, ourselves in the evangelical world. How has the doctrine of sola scriptura uh, been, been lost again uh, in our own day um, and needs to be recovered? It's been lost in actually two somewhat different directions, you can say. So, on one end... Uh, the, the original sola scriptura was the concept that the scriptures were the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. One direction in which this is lost is the idea that if I believe in sola scriptura, then that means I have to have no real connection to church tradition whatsoever. And so you end up with those who are falling off in a ditch of complete subjectivism. It is me, my Bible, under a tree, I'm my own interpreter. And that becomes, in a sense, a very clear deviation away from what Sola Scriptura was historically meant to mean. And we saw the Zwickau prophets yeah. leaving Luther and some of his disciples becoming radicalized and, and not even really believing in a, a visible church. That's right. And if you go down even further, think in the English Reformation times, you know, at the development of the Quakers and the Socinians yes. coming out and you go into the American scene, it kind of republishes itself in different forms. And that is one of the many ways of deviation away from it. But now we have this other direction, and perhaps they're connected, but they appear differently, is that we now have a situation in which scriptures no longer seem to be sufficient at all, in any sense. Scripture must be supplemented by something else, and really when people say supplemented, what they're practically saying is over and above, <laughs> in some mm -hmm. sense. And so, you know, in our modern day, we are dealing with issues of critical theory, critical social justice. We're dealing with all sorts of pragmatism within the church. We're dealing with... So theology is not enough. We need sociology yeah, we to now, inform our theology. Yeah, we now need all of the academic sociologists, psychologists, econ yeah. uh, economists coming in to basically fill in the gaps that are not there from the scriptures. Always underscoring that the Bible is not enough. Exactly. It is indeed not enough. It's not sola scriptura. It's uh, sola, it's, it's uh, scripture plus sociology or scripture plus psychology or scripture plus therapeutics. Exactly. And now, at, at this point, if you just kind of you know, think a little bit about the implications, 
if a practicing Roman Catholic today would come up to a Protestant and listen to how the normal Protestant views his scripture, uh, a normal critique would be, you're not that far off. <laughs> you have just a different stream of tradition that you're just unwilling to admit. We have a, in their view, an ongoing tradition, namely the actual Roman Catholic Church and going down throughout history. So the point is that when people deviate from Sola Scriptura, it's not that they're getting a new principle. They're just bringing in different streams of tradition along the way. Well, and Carl Truman's new book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, really brings out that uh, we really think at the end of the day that that truth is subjective hmm. and that it exists in me. So I have my truth, you have your truth. And if my truth is, is that... Um, I am a different gender, for instance, than I, I biologically am, then who are you to tell me that my truth is wrong? Definitely. In fact, recently I heard a politician who will remain unnamed uh, say to another person, um, that is your truth and it should not be uh, uh, argued with, you know? Uh -huh. and, and so, uh, what's interesting about this is that in our day of the modern self, uh, we, we, we put our own um, word from God, or our, which actually is, a, is a, an expression of our own hearts. It's not from God at all. But we say, God told me. And uh, this is this sloppy evangelical language where people say, well, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that, or God mm -hmm. told me to tell you this or that. Mm -hmm. That undermines sola scriptura. Yes. Because the question again is, has God spoken in His Word, past tense, which has a present? He is speaking through His spoken Word, the, the, the canon of Scripture. Uh, another problem we have are celebrity pastors that say, God told me yeah. to tell yeah. you this. I went on a, on a weekend uh, trip up to the mountains, and God has told me that we have a new vision for our church now. And so what are the people thinking? Well, I must listen, because yeah. God told him. This is undermining sola scriptura mm -hmm. and casting doubt that scripture is enough. And by the way, why would you want an old word when you can have a new and fresh word exactly. from the Spirit as, as they, they share? And so the, the point here is that you have multiple different ways in which the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is effectively undermined. And when you think about, again, if you were in a situation in the 1500s, knowing all the controversies that are going on today, would you have stood and be, and we welcome to be burned at the stake to defend Sola Scriptura? And I personally think most people would say you're taking this a little too seriously yeah, yeah. i think that would be the normal response and it's because they don't connect sola scriptura to the person and finished work of jesus christ that's right because in the end that's the point it's not that we're defending some old book it's that it's the word of god and the witness of our lord and savior jesus christ and that, that nicely leads into why if it is true that the scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith the scriptures teach very clearly that christ is the only mediator uh, between God and man. Solus Christus. Solus Christus. And now we have another, again, difference or a substantial difference between the Roman church and Protestantism. And the reality is, if you've never known the practicing Roman Catholics, then it is probably strange to you to think that there are people who think there are 
additional mediators beyond Christ himself. The main one being Mary. The main one being Mary, but there's a whole collection of saints. There's a whole treasury of merit that is there that can be drawn from through the actual additional works of merit of the saints and Mary. And the reality is that depending upon where you live in the world, there are some Roman Catholics who have enough nuance to differentiate veneration and worship but there are also a lot of people who don't do that. You have a lot of direct prayer, worship, adoration, and reverence that goes to Mary and other saints. And again, you ask the standard person, is it worth standing on the hill and dying for Christ to be the only mediator between God and man? And a Protestant has to say, absolutely, because Christ is the God-man. If he is not God, he cannot bear the wrath of God on our behalf. If he is not man, he cannot be our substitute. No saint nor Mary could ever fill that role. And then what it also does, and this is something if you've ever seen Roman Catholic art, you've heard Roman mu of Roman Catholic music, you may have seen this sort of portrayal where the reason that Mary is exalted to her status in a popular sense is because Jesus is very mean. He is the judge of all the earth. And he is standing to condemn sinners. And the idea is that Mary is love, glory, etc. And you can petition Mary to, in effect, alter Jesus' disposition towards you. We see this reinforced in the family, right? Yeah. Who do you go to uh, when you've gotten in trouble if you're a child? You mother. typically go to your mother. <laughs> yeah. um, and you don't want to face the wrath of your father. And mm -hmm. so it's this idea that Mary is the tender patient one that will calm Jesus down and, and, and represent you and pray for you. Hail Mary, Mother of Grace, nice. pray for me, right? Um, and that's the idea. And so at this, again, just think about the implications of that. Think about living under a belief in which the Savior of the world is apparently too mean-hearted to hear you. And therefore, you have to go to a human mediator to override the God man. That's a Which means which means, doesn't it, Gabe, that Jesus is not enough. Exactly. I mean in the end what we're seeing here is a theme, right? Mm -hmm. The scriptures aren't enough. <laughs> Jesus is not enough. Of course, we get to faith. Faith is not enough. Yep. Um, it's works. Grace is clearly not sufficient to bring the uh, Christian to salvation. Sola gratia, right? God's grace yeah. is not enough to save us. And that means that if all of those things are true, that means the glory of God is not the sole goal in mind. And that is, you can say, the penultimate telos, the goal of where this leads. What Protestants have stood for is the glory of God alone for all of worship, all of life, and in the church. If you, from the Protestant view, if you, in a sense, undermine sola fide, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and the scriptures alone, you're going to eventually undermine the last. That the glory of God is not what is most important or it is not the penultimate or the ultimate point of the Christian's life and devotion. Now, we've uh, talked about the, the five solas uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Um, it's, a, it's a helpful way to unpack some major uh, doctrine. Uh, but uh, there's so much more, right, mm -hmm. that, that we can understand about what came out of the Protestant Reformation, what kinds of things were, uh, uh, were fought for, what, what doctrine was found to be so important and foundational that it would be passed on to the people. And uh, we have... 
uh, confessions and catechisms right. that clearly communicate this. And so, when we look back uh, to uh, the Protestant Reformation and uh, post-Reformation in the 17th century, uh, we have all kinds of wonderful uh, pedagogical discipleship tools in the confessions and catechisms. For instance, uh, we have the uh, the Belgic Confession, 1561, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Uh, we have all kinds of catechisms. In fact, in between um, uh, about an 80-year period there, during uh, uh, from about 1530 to the early 17th century, uh, we've got 500 catechisms that were written by various pastors and uh, uh, catechisms that were supported by um, and encouraged by various princes uh, in various uh, regions uh, in order that the people would be uh, taught, that the children would be brought up in proper uh, and sound doctrine. Are these things we care about today? Oh, well, they, they, they absolutely <laughs> should be. But uh, then we, of course, have the, uh, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith written in the 16th 40s, in the days of the Civil War in London, uh, and the larger and shorter catechisms. And then, of course, in 1618, 19, we have the, the Synod of Dort, which meets in Dortrecht and is, is clearly a defense of, of the gospel and particularly uh, uh, predestination and election and these important doctrines which, which keep this uh, gospel, protect this gospel from uh, a kind of Pelagian or semi Pelagian view. Right, and kind of forwards this to uh, the American scene and to the modern day. Uh, the question always arises: Has the have the differences between the Roman Church and Protestantism been diminished over time? And the answer to that is actually no. It's actually gotten wider in a lot of important ways. And one way that we've already alluded to is. All of the modern devotion on Mary that we now kind of see as a Roman Catholic staple, that wasn't, in that case, dogmatized at the time of the Reformation. That came afterwards. And so that means all of these issues that we had in seed, well, not seed form, many of the major issues that were in the Protestant Reformation have now just widened in a sense because now we have not just the dogmatic Search the dogmatic statements from the Council of Trent that anathematizes virtually all Protestant doctrines. We now have all of this language about Mary as both a co-mediatrix at this point. We now have language after the Reformation about not just the infallibility of the Pope, but we now have Pope exalted to even higher status than he was at the beginning of the 1500s. And so many of these things haven't diminished. They've gotten wider. And that means even in a day in which there is so much secularism around us, it is tempting to just try to find someone who's not secular and to downplay those differences. And at this point, a Protestant has to say, you know, we stand upon these substantial differences. These are not minor issues that can be swept under the rug because there are political pressures around us. The reality is that we are still sharply divided. And from our perspective, it is primarily because in the Protestant Reformation, the gospel was largely recovered and illumined to the normal uh, person in the pew. That problem has not changed because if you were to go back to a Roman church today, 
you would see the same type of darkness that you would have saw in the 1500s. And and one of the biggest uh, issues, of course, that emerged, um, one of the biggest fights uh, in the Protestant Reformation was over worship, mm -hmm. right? It was a central uh, uh, issue. And uh, we, we recognize that uh, all of the abuses that took place in public worship in the Roman Catholic Church are in some ways mirrored today in broad evangelicalism. That's right. Uh, a, a lack of emphasis in, in, in careful, biblical, Christ-centered preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, biblical, I mean, when you look at the, the, um, the, the preaching that emerged uh, from Zwingli and Calvin and others uh, during the Protestant Reformation, you saw a commitment to systematic expository preaching, preaching line by line through books of the Bible so that the people would have Christ from the whole counsel of God. Right. Um, and uh, of course, we embrace that that here, that that method of preaching here at Christ Church, and Reformed churches have done so for centuries, um, and so we we want to remember that as we remember the Protestant Reformation. Um, we, we also uh, think about um, uh, congregational singing. Uh, this was an important aspect. You know, uh, it was said that the, the the Catholic bishops and and cardinals and pope were were more afraid of Luther's hymns than they were of his theology and his preaching. Uh, why is that? Because his hymns, which were reinforcing Protestant doctrine, were being sung and memorized by the people in the streets. And uh, and so that was having a huge impact. And uh, But, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, there was no, no congregational singing. And, uh, of course, there was a revival of psalm singing as well. Um, which was so such an important part of of, of the Reformation. Uh, the the Reformation of the sacraments of mm. baptism and the Lord's Supper were so important, um, and we could go on and on about these things. But today, in modern evangelical worship services, you see a a, a an emphasis on personality plus in the pulpit mm. on. Uh, on uh, therapeutics and sociology and psychology and cultural emphases rather than on uh, the, the plain reading and preaching and application of the Word of God. That's a big problem, right? Um, Huge problem. And, and then congregational singing. It's all microphone-driven, and it's a performance, uh, just like it was in the Catholic Church. You can argue that there are lots of similarities there um, that uh, sometimes literally you're given popcorn as you walk into the, 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 the meeting room room and 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 entertained um there was a church uh, not too long ago that actually had a a uh, a circus at the beginning of their service and handed out popcorn and so you have this kind of abuse of of worship that is meant to convey the holiness and the majesty of god and the gospel it's turned into a kind of circus sometimes quite literally yeah and then Again, I, I go back to the, the point I made at the beginning that to see Protestants, in a sense, giving up their birthright, at least in modern day, uh, these, these are things that were fought for, bled for, died for, and we are, in a sense, the recipients of that. It's akin to what would happen if a child threw away the inheritance of their own uh, family. And we would say that's a shameful act. Uh, we would say such a such a child is essentially ungrateful and doesn't even know what they've received. And the same, in a sense, can be said about Protestants who keep the label in different ways, but have effectively thrown away the entire birthright and inheritance that's given there. 
And that's why at the end of the day, celebrations of Reformation Day remains important because it's meant to commemorate what we as Protestants have received from those who have come before us. It's not just a day in which we just do hero worship of various figures. It is commemorating what we have received and we believe uh, have been received from the scriptures, what has been revived, what has been passed down, and what has been given to us. Hebrews 11 encourages us. Uh, Hebrews 12, uh, we have that great hall of faith, right? The, the great cloud of witnesses. Yeah, yeah. And, and these reformers are a part of that cloud of witnesses that spur us on and, and encourage us to, uh, to be faithful, uh, even in the midst of, of, of persecution. I do uh, once again want to invite uh, all of our, uh, our church members and anyone else who's listening uh, and would like to join us on Sunday evening at 5.30 uh, p.m. October 31st, uh, Reformation Day. Some people like to call it Halloween, uh, but it is Reformation Day, and we encourage you to come join us. I'll be giving a biographical lecture on Martin Luther, and we'll have some refreshments and fellowship afterward. Please join us. And as we uh, conclude this uh, episode, I want to read a quote from Martin Luther. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Join us Sunday evening. And thank you for listening to this episode of Between the Times.